Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm a philosopher who advocates Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Today is the third episode, and I think the last, if it all goes well, in the series that explores why academic philosophers think that objectivism isn't a serious philosophy. And the first thing I said, the opening, is we don't think that they're a serious philosophy. So the issue is what are the standards and methods of a serious philosophy? Objectivism holds that a serious philosophy is one that speaks about the nature of existence of man and of man's relationship to existence. It has a metaphysics, a theory of the nature of existence as such, an epistemology, a theory of what man needs to do in order to know existence, an ethics, how man is to continue in existence himself, and a politics, how ethics applies to social organizations and government. Also, there's a philosophy of art, aesthetics, which is part of philosophy because it encapsulates all the preceding in a concrete model, according to Ayn Rand's theory of aesthetics. It presents a model of a philosophy. So the difference is that the basic, basic difference is that we think that philosophy has to say something about life and we think it has to use logic to say it. Now, of course, philosophers, although they would say there's nothing really to say about life, not much. I mean, there's some that are starting to think you can say something in ethics. There's a school called Virtue Ethics, which believes in saying something in ethics about human existence. And that's a good trend. But they would say, what do you mean logic? We're the ones who are using logic. Well, what is your conception of logic? Ayn Rand's philosophy of logic is that logic comes down to two essentials. Context and hierarchy. Context, the surrounding information and knowledge into which any new piece of knowledge must fit, must be integrated. Hierarchy, the steps starting from sense perception by which you reach that knowledge and validate that knowledge. You validate it by taking it back down those steps to the perceptual level. That's called a process of reduction. Reduction is not considered it does not exist as far as um, philosophy of the last hundred years is concerned. Context is given some mild acknowledgement, and philosophers would be horrified at finding any contradiction <clears throat> in their viewpoint. But the idea that a viewpoint has to proceed by methodical steps from perception up and be checked by 
going back down the ladder to get to perceptual reality, that idea is completely alien to them. They don't know what you're talking about. And it's on the issue of hierarchy in particular that objectivism is distinguished from all philosophies of the last three or four hundred years. And I'm going to begin by uh, just giving you a couple of interesting quotes from historical figures before we even get to the contemporaries. But let me say more words uh, to concretize you know, what hierarchy is. The best example is you can't learn algebra until you've learned arithmetic. You can't know what 2a plus 6a equals 8a means if you don't know what 2 plus 6 equals 8 means. You can't know any equation, obviously, if you don't know arithmetic. And algebra is a generalization from arithmetic. So who could disagree with that? Every school philosophy since about 1900, every school philosophy holds that the foundation of mathematics is not perception, but is set theory. You may have been taught the new math in education. That's the result of the philosopher's viewpoint, starting with Bertrand Russell and before him Frege, that the number one, what do you think the number one means? The set of all sets that are equinumerous with the null set. Now I say one means the quantity of fingers I'm holding up in my right hand in front of the camera. And it's grasped by distinguishing that quantity from this quantity and this quantity, etc. And you see it in many different cases, three eggs, three apples, three uh, songs, three thoughts. All of them are three, which is based upon two, which is based upon one. So the distinction between one and two, one and two and three, is perceptually given. It can be analyzed, but it's certainly not into the set of all sets that are equinumerous with the null set, which is what some of you were probably taught. And then, if that's one, what is two? Two is the set of all sets that are equinumerous with the null set and the set of all sets that are equinumerous with the null set. So in effect, two is the null set and the set which is one, and so on. You go on in that manner. Now this is anti-hierarchical. You can't teach a child that one and one is two, or two and two is four, if you try and start him with the set theory. Nor is a number like two a class of things. So the idea that it's the set of all sets that are blah, 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 it's not a set. It's not a group. It's not a class. Now, I'm contrasting here attributes with entities. Man and mankind is a set. Dogs 
are set, not in the technical sense of, you know, mathematical sense, but they are a group. Dogs are species within a wider group, animals, right? But two is not a group of things. Compare with red. Red is not the class of red things. It's an attribute of the things that are red. It is not those things. It's not a group of entities. So some words classify like animal and some words describe like red. And by describing, I mean they name a characteristic of what they were, uh, of things in reality, of certain things in reality. So red is the color of a fire engine or a ripe tomato or any other thing that you could point to that's red. It is not the things. Red does not sta stand for uh, tomatoes and fire engines. There is no class that puts tomatoes together with fire engines. Same way, two is a quantity, which is a characteristic of a group. The group has two members, but the group is not two. The group you could call a couple. Two-ness is what makes a couple different from a trio. It's not the objects in the couple. It's not me and my wife, Jean. That's not two. We're a couple, and the quantity of people in that couple is two. And it matches the quantity of fingers I'm now holding up. So the concept of two is not a set at all, let alone defining it in terms of nothingness, the null set. But the point I want to make is you couldn't possibly begin your knowledge of quantitative relationships, of which arithmetic is the first scientific uh, exposition or method. You couldn't begin with sets. Sets are very sophisticated, advanced things. So you have to begin with what is closer to perception. And the difference between this and this, the quantitative difference, is close to perception and is not about a set. Yet we're taught the new math. Now in thinking about this today, I realized that phonics versus the look-say method that we're taught now, whole language it's sometimes called, is phonics is the right method and the look-say is a crippling, destructive, vicious method. And the difference is one of hierarchy. How so? Well, what is the phonics method? The phonics method is that A makes a sound like A, ah, the letter A, ah, and F makes a sound F. And you're taught the sounds that each letter makes. So it's based upon the sound, the shapes capture the sound of words. What is the look-say method based on? It's based on the shape of the words as written corresponds to what you say, the shape of the word. There's no pronouncing of anything. But 
we didn't begin language with written language. Hierarchically, the first thing was spoken language. And some genius among the Phoenicians, we think, invented the idea of let's encode the sound in graphics, in shapes. And let's have as few of them as we can, an alphabet. So it's the, the um, look-say method assumes the words are here. So all you have to do is recognize how they look. You don't have to grasp their connection to spoken language. They're not encoding spoken language. They're encoding words. Oh, where did the words come from? Well, books. I mean, you see the anti-hierarchical nature? Language begins in every individual and in the human race in spoken language. And it's only in fairly recent times in a geological scale that encoding of the sound in a certain standardized shapes has been invented. So if you want to teach someone to read, you have to retrace that process. You can't have him memorize shapes in relation to words as if the words were given. So both the new math and the look-say method, modern eth uh, methods of education, are anti-hierarchical. And they are that because the philosophers have been anti-hierarchical. And this is not a recent thing. You know, I'm attacking contemporary philosophers because they are the ones alive, ready to attack objectivism. But this goes back quite a ways. And it's kind of a default position. You're not going to be hierarchical unless you have thought about it and realized the issue of hierarchy and worked out what depends on what. Here's Spinoza's ethics. It's really not just ethics, it's a whole philosophy. And part one, sentence one, meaning the beginning of philosophy for Spinoza. I've got, but let me tease you a bit. Ayn Rand says the beginning is existence. Existence exists. Here's Spinoza. Who's a good guy? He's one of the better philosophers. By cause of itself, I understand that whose essence involves existence, or that whose nature cannot be conceived unless existing. Really? Where'd you get the concept cause? Where'd you get the concept essence? Where'd you get the concept conceiving and understanding? How come they're appearing on the scene? He doesn't realize that you have to begin with pointing out to the world. It is. That's all you can say as the very first thing. That's the way a baby begins. It is. He doesn't know what it is yet, 
He doesn't know that it has causes. He doesn't know that there's an essence of anything. It's just it, existence. Now let's go a hundred and some years ahead to David Hume. A Treatise of Human Nature. Part one, section one, sentence one. All the perceptions of the human mind resolve themselves into two distinct kinds, which I shall call impressions and ideas. Huh? Where did the human mind come from? What is that? Where did human come from? Where did perception come from? What, where, how do you know there's two different kinds, impressions and ideas? He tells us what the difference is, by the way. The difference between these consists in the degrees of force and liveliness with which they strike upon the mind and make their way into our thought or consciousness. Where does that come from? Our? You mean there are other people? There are other minds? Where do, mind? What is that? What, what is it aware of? There's consciousness? Thought? There must be some object in the world that gives rise to thought and that the consciousness is of. But no, he starts with, there are two kinds of things in the mind the faint ones and the lively ones. Just, just jump right in, David. Tell us how it is. <clears throat> now, let's go to the moderns now. Quine, Willard Van Orman Quine, Harvard philosopher, one of the very top and most highly regarded philosophers of the 20th century. He had the problem of the Gavagai. You know the problem of the Gavagai? A, the the Gavagai is a made-up example of a tribe, a primitive tribe that uh, a missionary from a civilized European country goes and converses with. But, it, of course, he doesn't know the language of the Gavagai. He's the first... European to interact with the Gavagai tribe. So he's sitting at the fireside with the chief and a rabbit jumps in the bush. And the chief points and says, Gavagai. Now, you may think, oh, so Gavagai is their word for rabbit. But Quine points out we can't assume that. It could be the word for jumping, for rustling, for bush, for dinner, for, and this is my favorite, pre-disassembled set of rabbit parts. Pre-disassembled set of rabbit parts. Now, do you get a glimmer of how anti-hierarchical that is? Entities are prior to actions, surroundings, and parts of entities. So, of course, it means rabbit. 
the, the chief would not be trying to teach him the word for pre-disassembled, if he could even grasp that, or rustling bush, or anything else, the salient fact available if you realize what primitive concepts are, uh, it has to be rabbit. That, now, this assumes you see the rabbit jump in the bush, so the chief knows what happened and what he did. But let's suppose, let's suppose that there's some question and the missionary's not sure. What very simple thing does Quine not consider? Because this is an insoluble problem. He doesn't consider that the missionary can point to another rabbit and say, Gavagai? He doesn't consider the negative uh, cases because all concepts, according to Ayn Rand, are formed by a process of differentiation that creates the context for the similarity. Things that are integrated under one concept are things that are similar as compared to the foil, the very different thing that is otherwise similar. How can it be very different and similar? Well, it has the same general uh, characteristic, underlying characteristic, but different measurements or degrees. So, for example, uh, Paris is far from me compared to the next town up, which happens to be called Bonita Springs. So Bonita Springs and Naples, Florida, where I am, are similar in location if you contrast to Paris. But if you contrast Naples and Bonita Spring to uh, Fort Myers, or no, Estero, well, Benita Springs is very close to Acero, it's at the same distance as from Naples, so no longer do you know what to do with that. On the other hand, Paris, which I took as my contrasting third concrete, suddenly becomes very near if you go to Naples, Benita Spring, Paris, and Mars. Suddenly, the difference throws the three Earth locations into being near each other, being very close to each other compared to the vast distance. But the general characteristic, which Ayn Rand calls a conceptual common denominator, is that we're talking about distance. We're not talking about temperature or cuisine or uh, color or any, anything else. We're talking about distance. And that's in common among all of them, including Mars. And that's how we're able to contact. You couldn't say Naples, Bonita Spring, and freshness. Fresh does not, is not on the same scale as locations of cities or towns. So the Gavagai, you would want to differentiate from something. That's how you establish what's a Gavagai and what's not a Gavagai. And Quine should know this because I like to use the term foil for the differentiate 
the, the different concrete, that, like Mars in the case of Bonita Springs in Naples, is a foil. It's a literary term. And Quine is the one who adopted that term. I don't know in what context, but he obviously doesn't get it in regard to the Gabba God. So there's two issues here. <clears throat> the first is that we begin with sense perception and we build up abstractions from that. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so we're not going to have as the first concept for a primitive tribe, pre-disassembled set of rabbit parts. <clears throat> they don't even have the concept disassemble. They probably have words, you know, cut up something. And pre, they wouldn't have. So you could make a description, but there wouldn't be a word for things that could be cut up but haven't been cut up yet. There wouldn't be a word for that. There'd be a word for rabbit. There'd be a word for hunt. There'd be a word for teepee or tent or whatever their structure is. There'd be a word for woman and for child, but not for pre-disassembled set of anything. So that's the first thing is that concepts get more abstract starting from perception. That's the basic hierarchy of of uh, knowledge applied to concepts, concept formation. You can't begin your concept forming process with insurance. So you have a two-year-old and you say to him, insurance, and you point to insurance contract or something. He'll think you mean paper if he thinks anything. You cannot have insurance as a concept form for, from perception. You cannot have set as a concept form from perception. So it's anti-hierarchical. Now, how far do they go with this anti-hierarchical stuff? Well, I used to teach logic in college, and I used this book, not because it's the best, but it's not a bad book, and it was the number one used thing, Introduction to Logic by Irving M. Copey. Copey discusses ostensive definitions. Ostensive definitions are definitions that are not given in words, but by giving examples or pointing. So Gabagai would be an ostensive definition of rabbit if Gabagai stands for rabbits. And ostensive definitions have to precede verbal definitions because how do you know the meaning of the words you use to define the first term unless they have definitions? Well, actually you could, but this is the argument they give. They break out of the circle of words. There has to be some concept that's defined by pointing or gesturing. That's called ostensive, you know, by showing. Copey says, 
in his section on definition. An ostensive definition refers to the examples by means of pointing or some other gesture. An example of an ostensive or demonstrative definition, that's just another word for it, would be the word desk means this accompanied by a gesture such as pointing a finger or nodding one's head in the direction of a desk. To point to a desk is also to point to a part of it and to the color of the desk, the shape, the size and material of the desk, and also in fact to everything that lies in the general direction of the desk, such as the wall behind it or the garden beyond. This ambiguity can be resolved only by adding some descriptive phrase to the definiens. The definiens is the the part of the definition that's not the term you're defining. For example, as for example, the word desk means this article of furniture accompanied by the appropriate gesture. This addition, however, defeats the purposes that ostensive definitions have been claimed to serve. Ostensive definitions have sometimes, uh, no, let me skip down. It is by means of ostensive definitions some writers have claimed that we learn to understand our first words. This claim is easily seen to be mistaken. For the meaning or significance of gestures must themselves be learned. If you point with your finger to the side of a baby's crib, the baby's attention, if attracted at all, is as likely to be directed toward your finger as in the direction pointed. And surely one is in the same difficulty concerning the definition of gestures by means of other gestures. I can't point to my pointing. To understand the definition of any sign, some signs must already be understood. So, Quine, obviously he got that from Quine. Quine is saying the missionary can't learn the tribesman's language. And Copius said, saying, a baby can't be taught words by exhibiting examples. Neither of them is in the slightest trouble by the fact, is, is troubled in the slightest by the fact that we do learn tribal languages and babies do learn to speak. And they learn to speak in that way. The mother holds up, it doesn't have to be pointing. I mean, what a ridiculous, you know, pointing or some other gesture, like nodding your head. Hey, what ridiculous, the mother gives this to the infant. The infant grabs it. They love to grab things. And she says, pen. Now that can't work. We've got a philosophical proof that that can't work because the baby might think it means pre-disassembled pen parts or mass-produced item, or consumer good, or possible projectile. And they're not at all bothered. They go into print in a logic textbook, and they're given positions at Harvard saying, you can't teach a baby to speak, and you can't learn another language.
I mean, the first man to encounter a tribe can't learn its language. Okay. News, news to the whole world, but now who is the serious philosophy or philosopher? Someone who says, well, he might be pointing to pre-disassembled rabbit parts. Or, and someone who says, well, you can't point to things and explain them because then you could only point to your pointing and, you know, how does the baby... Or someone who says knowledge begins at perception. But before there's knowledge is existence. Existence exists and we are conscious of it and the consciousness develops in stages beginning with sensory perception, which is automatic. And from that base we build up concepts because certain things look similar when contrasted to other things that share a conceptual common denominator and that similarity reduces to a quantitative issue of degree or measurements, which is a serious philosophy and which is the joke. You'll get back to me on that, I think, right? So I want to take up in the, well, we, we're officially out, but I can't resist commenting on another area of anti-hierarchical it's all over philosophy and that's Robert Nozick the man who made capitalism legitimate he got it from Ayn Rand and he kind of subtly acknowledges that in a footnote but here's the first remember how I read the first sentence of Spinoza in here here's the first sentence you see, it really is the first sentence of Nozick's book on politics entitled Anarchy, State, and Utopia. It's actually the first statement of the preface. Individuals have rights and there are things no person or group may do to them, parenthesis, without violating their rights. Individuals have rights and there are things no person or group may do to them without violating their rights. Huh? Where'd that come from? Oh, well, that's an axiom. I just, you know, I assert that. And what do you mean without violating their rights? Why should, yeah, the, so you could define uh, individuals have uh, an alphabetical order of status. Anyone who's A, last name begins with A, is better than anyone whose last name begins with B, and so on through the alphabet. So there's an order of honor, which is alphabetical. And people cannot, uh, cannot violate this order without violating the principle of alphabetical honor. Yeah, so why shouldn't we violate the principle of alphabetic honor, which I just made up, of course. No, we just jump in at floor 34 and say, well, now floor 35 is coming up. It's based on floor 34. So not only does he launch into rights without any foundation for what rights are, and well, he does discuss what rights are, why man has rights, because he has no theory of that. But he also says, you have rights and nobody can violate them unless they do. 
bananas. And this is the most pro-capitalist contemporary philosopher, he's deceased now, uh, that there ever was in the academic world. He was, guess where he was? Harvard. So the three people I've taken as my examples in this and other lectures of anti-hierarchicalness are all from Harvard. Willard Van Orman Quine, Robert Nozick, and Nelson Goodman. He's the guy with Grew, Bleen, and Bagleet. So we're not talking about, you know, Jersey City State College here. We're talking about the preeminent universities of North America in the 20th century. This is not an unfair characterization. This is the main line of contemporary philosophy. And to be fair, it's the uh, same error that started being committed as far back as Descartes, uh, who did seek to be hierarchical, but cheated on it. That's another story. So, uh, thank you. Let's see if there's a uh, new question in the chat, because I covered all the ones that I wanted to cover from the chat last time. Um, how is Nietzsche, James Taylor said, a consequence of Kant? Nietzsche's epistemology is called perspectivalism. And it's just straight Kantianism. Everybody has his own perspective on reality, and nobody can get outside his mind to know reality as it is in himself, as it is in itself. So his epistemology is complete Kantianism. His uh, ethics is a, it takes the other side of the Kantian false alternative. Either you do your duty or you go by whim. And he says, I'll take the whim. So it, it's definitely a Kantian offshoot. It could not possibly exist, Nietzsche, without the Kantian base uh, being established and firmly accepted. Now, for the record, Kant did not think the categories were individual. But that's arbitrary. I mean, the categories are unknowable. He proceeds to tell us what they are. But the, his, his view of what the distorting filters are that prevent you from seeing true reality is inherent in any rational faculty. Whereas Nietzsche thinks, well, you have your truth, I have my truth, and uh, he's accepted the already established breaking up of the Kantian uh, universalized uh, categories into individualized. And racial collectivism is the same thing. Uh, the, Hitler thought that there was Jewish logic and Aryan logic, for example. And there was no way to say one was better than the other because that would imply you could make an objective judgment. But there is no objective judgment. But the truth is racialized. The Marxists do the same thing. There's bourgeois logic and proletarian logic. And neither can judge the other. But they're 
categories that filter things differently according to how much money you have. So they're all taking Kant's cat distorting categories that are a filter between you and the real world and making little variations on them. And why not? Why not say that the, uh, the, the Kantian categories are different for tall people and short people? Or they're the same for everybody except me? It's arbitrary, so you know, write your own scenario, write your own script, and that's what they did. So let me see if there's another one I can answer. No, that was actually left over. Well, I'll just end on this one. Were some of your peers and colleagues shocked when they discovered you took Ayn Rand seriously? Um, they pretended to be. I, and most of them hired me or associated with me already knowing I was an objectivist because I was pretty out there with it. And um, I didn't have a lot of discrimination. I mean, they were against it. That's all right. I'm against them. So uh, I once spoke to Ayn Rand about what my relationship be with the other members of my department when I taught at Hunter College. And she quoted some 19th century person who said to a colleague, all I want from you is politeness and damn little of that. Speaking of politeness, let me wish you a good week and I'll see you next week. Goodbye.